yesterday, my family and I went to Oktoberfest, which is uh, in September. First of all, it's important that you uh, recognize that. In downtown McKinney, uh, it's where the McKinneyites gather and be German for a couple days. And so we did that. Uh, a lot of people wearing... Is it lederhosen or is that a food? Whatever the weird overalls are. Uh, and the people that were wearing that looked like they were forced to do it. They didn't really look like they were in the German spirit. I walked by and they were like, hi. You know, I don't know if their spouse made them do it. But I took my kids there and I was like, this is what Americans do. Look elsewhere and celebrate it in the only way we know how, which is abundance and things like that. And so very true uh, to American form, there's you know the German celebration and then there's a random carnival, right? So there's the you know, the slides that are real long that they put together a good three minutes before you walked up to climb it. And, you know, there's like a 50-50 chance that you'll die on it. And there's a Ferris wheel and you're like, okay, I guess this is how I, I go. This looks really, really rickety. But for some reason, I will pay a ridiculous amount of money to do this. It's like $5 per circle, right, on the Ferris wheel. So we did this, right, because it's Saturday, and what else, what else are you going to do? So I'm going, doing this, uh, taking my life into my own hands, and going on that long slide with my uh, three-year-old, Harvey, and you sit on a sack, but my legs were a bit, you know, too, too wide, so I got a nice leg wax on the way down. Uh, and so observing my life and my, my decisions yesterday, and my wife's as well, you would ask the question, or you should ask the question, why are you behaving this way? What is, what is going on? Why are you doing this? Uh, and what, if you, if you paid attention, what you would see is the way I'm spending my time, the way I'm spending my resources, my, my weekend, the way I'm spending my money, you should be able to discern a couple things about my life. And the only thing possible to discern yesterday was I love my children. I love my children. Uh, the carnival was terrifying and leg-waxing for me, for my three-year-old and my one-year-old, who my wife snuck on the slide, by the way, let that be noted, she was not tall enough to ride the ride, and my wife just walked up, gave them a thumbs up, and did it, and they survived. And that's why I age like a president, uh, because that is who my wife is. Uh, it was great for them. The, the smiles were beaming on their face. So you could look at my life, see all these weird decisions, and discern there's something in his heart that is making him behave this way, and it's he loves his kids. And similarly, as we look at the scripture today, Jesus is going to say, I'm going to be able to look at your life, see how you spend your money, see how you spend your time and your resources, what are the goals of your life, what you're pouring out your life for, and I will be able to tell, I should be able to tell, where your treasure is, what you're ultimately living for by observing your behavior, and he's going to try and correct that a little bit. As we look at his scripture today, we're going to see three things. Number one, the treasure of your heart. Number two, the light of your eyes. And number three, the Lord of your life. The treasure of your heart, the light of your eyes, and the Lord of your life. Let's dive in. Look at verse 19, Matthew 6, 19. Do not Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will, also, will be also. Okay, so again, we, we're, we've been seeing Jesus as he's walking through this will give just Right out of the gate, some commands. And so we right out of the gate, we see a command, a don't, 
right? Don't do this. Don't lay up treasures on this earth. Don't store up treasures on this earth. Quite simply, a treasure, something that you're pouring out your life for, something that you're working for. The efforts of your life will produce treasures, right? It will, there's an end goal behind it, right? You go to work, you labor, you work, you get a paycheck, and you put that in the bank, right? You, you, your work is for something, for some sort of treasure. There's always an end goal in mind that you're working towards. And so Jesus says, don't, as that happens, as it's going to happen with all of us, make sure you're not storing up treasures that are on this earth, Don't always be after just the next best thing. Don't have the same value system that the world has, that the world is after, right? The next biggest and greatest. Why? Why is he telling us not to do this? Because the treasures on this earth that you may be tempted to store up won't last. The treasures on this earth won't last. Look at verse 19 again. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So if you're always after uh, the next nicest clothes or outfit or whatever, moths are going to break in and eat those, which I'll be honest with everyone in this room. I didn't know moths did that. I've read this passage a billion times. I thought they were just ugly butterflies. Apparently, they eat your clothes, right? So don't just be after the next best thing. Don't be after just the next best car because every car is going to one day end up in the junkyard, Rust will eventually get in there and destroy. And if your treasures here survive, the moths, the, the, the killer moths and the rust, thieves also will break in and steal, right? Don't lay up treasures here because they will deteriorate. They'll be stolen. They'll be destroyed. That's the reality of treasures here in this world, on this earth. Uh, Joe, my, my one-year-old, Talk about my kids. You should expect this by now, all the time. Uh, Joe is so sweet and beautiful, blue eyes, and she is a destroyer of things. Harvey, our three-year-old, he was born. He's like me. He's like, more rules, please. Can I obey you in any other way? And we're like, you know, parenting's so easy. We've got no child's locks on any doors. Joe shows up, and oh my goodness. I mean, it's unreal. We were at the park the other day, and these kids were gathered around this roly-poly and just looking at it, God's creation, Joe walks up, my little three-year-old, she can barely walk, she waddles in, picks it up, and, oh, and just traumatizes, right, all the kids, and then she throws it down and walks off, right? Nothing in my home is safe. Uh, Harvey's off in the corner playing with some cars. Joe, like, finds knives that are on top of our fridge somehow, right? Nothing is safe in our home because our home is on the earth, And God has graciously given us a child to constantly remind us that things here, treasures here, could go any day, and most likely will go any day in the Lawson home because of our sweet baby daughter, okay? So things here will be destroyed. They won't last. And even if they do last, you won't last There's a reality that will meet every single person in this room that will one day pry your earthly treasures from your hands, and it's death. I read some pastor somewhere uh, said, that's actually true, I don't know who said this. Sometimes people will say that like, a pastor once told me, and they're just quoting Charles Spurgeon. Uh, This is, I don't know who said this, but you never see a a U-Haul behind a hearse. 
You can't take it with you, as the good old saying goes. Your earthly treasures will stay on the earth when you leave the earth. They survive the moths. You've got enough locks to keep the thieves out. It survives the rust. Somehow death will one day pry your things from your hands. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 12, 16 through 21, a parable of the rich fool, as it's called. Verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the, la- uh, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Storing up treasures here is foolish because at death, they will no longer be yours. They'll go to somebody else. They will most likely go in the trash, right? Somebody else, something that was so valuable to you, somebody else will look at it and be like, why did they keep this? Trash, right? It will one day be destroyed. Now, it's really, really important to see, uh, lest we swing the pendulum. Notice Jesus isn't necessarily saying earthly treasures are sinful. He's just saying they're foolish, It's foolish to pour out all your life for things that will fade. It will eventually be ripped from your hands, okay? So, verse 20, if we don't store up treasures here, what do we do, Jesus? Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So don't lay up treasures here. Do lay up lasting treasures treasures in heaven. Why? Because they'll last. If you don't lay up treasures here because they won't last, lay up treasures there, they will last for all of eternity. There's no rust in heaven. There's no thieves in heaven. There's redeemed thieves, but they don't steal anymore. And there's no moths in heaven, or if there are, they eat other things, right? And maybe they're a bit more beautiful, or we see them as more beautiful or whatever. But there's no deterioration in heaven, There's no one to take it away. There's nothing to destroy it in heaven. So it's it's easy for us, I think, to picture worldly treasures. Like when I say don't lay up treasures on earth, we think of materialism. We think of keeping up with the Joneses, things like that, the American dream. But what are treasures in heaven? Jesus kind of leaves it a little vague here. So, So what actually are treasures in heaven? I think quite simply it is everything that Jesus would call us to give our lives for. All the things that we've seen thus far in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see really throughout the entire New Testament, all the things that the Scriptures would call us to give our lives for are laying up treasures in heaven. I think Paul gives us a glimpse. As he's nearing the end of his life, he writes his final letter, 2 Timothy, and sends it off to Timothy. He says this in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me, notice that, laid up for me, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all those who has loved 
his appearing. So Paul, we know Paul's life, pouring out his life. He was this high-class Pharisee. He could have very much enjoyed all the treasures of the world, lays it all down, considers it rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ, pours out his life to plant churches and preach the gospel and make disciples and shepherd uh, those that he had been put under his care. So all the, all the spiritual things, right? Your, your prayers are never just you speaking words to the wall in your closet that is lasting for eternity. Think about that the next time you pray. The words exiting your mouth to the eternal God is laying up treasures in heaven. You're doing the very thing God would say, these are, these are the most important things for you to pour your life out for worship of God, praying to God, studying and being molded by his scriptures, letting your neighbors know how glorious he is, bearing your brothers and sisters' burdens in this church. Those are the things laying up treasures in heaven, the things that we think of as spiritual and some of the things that we would think of as unspiritual or just normal. We have a tendency, again, to constantly swing the pendulum, being a peacemaker, we saw earlier in Matthew 5. That's a mark of those in the kingdom. There's a fight. You bring peace. You've just stored up treasures in heaven. You might not think twice about it. You're just like, I didn't want this fighting to continue. Right? But it's the things that the Lord says are most valuable. Simply bearing one another's burdens. When you bring a meal over to uh, a friend's house, a couple that just had a baby and they're tired, that is uh, bearing one another's burdens. That's storing up treasures in heaven. When a brother or sister in Christ loses a loved one, you just go let them weep on your shoulder. Those are the things the Lord has called you to. So not just the big, oh, I evangelized and 13 people in my neighborhood gave their lives to the Lord. The little things, the unseen things. Think about the last couple weeks, the things that only your father sees, stores up treasures in heaven. I love uh, church history, and I think one of the things that uh, one of the failures of men throughout church history has, has terrified me of is swinging this pendulum. There's an author that I love. He was a pastor, and their fridge broke, and they barely had uh, any money. And instead of fixing their fridge, he went and bought more books, right, because it was more spiritual. That is wrong. God wants him taking care of his family. Paul would have told him, you just shouldn't have gotten married, right? Uh, you have been placed with a spouse to care for children to care for, right? It's not only spiritual things, it's the things you wouldn't even think of. Loving your kids, playing with them, caring for your spouse, providing for your family. So don't just do the kind of dualistic, treasures in heavens are only the spiritual thing, treasures on earth are boring things like, you know, getting a job and working. That's what God wants you to do. That's what God's called you to do. So don't separate those two, right? Again, Paul charges Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and to share, ready to share, thus storing up, there it is again, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, that which is truly life. So don't 
Store up treasures here on this earth that will fade away or be ripped out of your hands, rather. Store up treasures in heaven where nothing is destroyed, nothing is stolen, and at death, rather than losing all of your treasures, you get all of your treasures. Jim Elliott, the the missionary martyr, famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I imagine he was reading this passage when that famous quote was said. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. It's the fool who tries to keep what will be ripped from his hands and gives up what can never be taken away. Jesus says, don't live for this. Live to store up treasures that are in heaven. So the first question for us as we think through this is where are we laying up our treasures? If someone would observe your spiritual life, are you going down the giant green slide, getting your legs waxed, but living for your children, right? What is your life being poured out for? Because Jesus is going to plead with us over and over again, let your life be poured out for heavenly treasures that will last forever. This life is tiny, 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 a dot on the spectrum of eternity. And so live this life in light of the next life. This life is a vapor, it's a mist, it will one day fade away and be forgotten. It's a good thing for us to remember, we will die and be forgotten. Who here can tell me three facts about your great-great-grandfather? Who here can tell me their real name? Maybe you knew Papa, who knows their real first and last name? Probably not many of us. They may have lived a full life, 80 years. They may have done great things. It's all forgotten now. And they're in eternity, and they would probably plead with us, like the rich man of Luke 16, wanting to warn his brothers, don't pour out your life now for this life. It is a blip. It will go away quickly. Live your life for the life that will last forever. Live your life for eternity. Live this life in light of the next life. John uh, Chrysostom, who's the early church preacher, he was called the golden mouth, which sounds like a Bond villain, but uh, he says this, we are only temporary guests on earth. We recognize that the houses in which we live only serve as hostels on the road to eternal life. We do not seek peace or security from the material walls around us or the roof over our heads. Rather, we want to surround ourselves with a wall of divine grace and look upward to heaven as our roof and the furniture of our lives should be good works performed in a spirit of love. Live this life in light of the next life. Or another quote from a missionary named C.T. Studd, which sounds like a Bond hero. Uh, Only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Everyone on their deathbed, you included, will think back to so many of the things you labored for and think, why did I do that? Non-Christians constantly say, I wish I would have had a better relationship with my family. You will instantly be aware of what was important and what is going, what is being currently ripped from your hands. Billy Graham, I love Billy Graham. 
uh, and his, his museum was right where we were in um, Charlotte, and so it was free. So I took anyone who visited, I was like, let's go to the Billy Graham Museum. Uh, and the last interview of his life is in there playing on, on repeat. And you think Billy Graham, he's, he is the most visible, this is actually true, the most visible human being that's ever lived. His TV time, his radio time, the amount of crowds uh, he's stood before. He was the most seen human that we know of. I guess, I don't know how we get these statistics, but it's a statistic that I'm quoting to you now, um, that ever existed. And in this last interview, they say, would you do anything different? And without a second's hesitation, he said, I would have prayed a lot more. And I would have taken way less speaking engagements. I would have still evangelized, but, you know, they wanted me to speak at this dinner because I was Billy Graham or go, you know, speak at a president's ball. I would have said no to those things. I don't want to just pray more. I would have just told God how much I, I love him. And I would have poured out my life to study more and know him more. This is Billy Graham saying these things towards the end of his life, instantly aware. I would have stored up more treasures uh, in heaven that they will come for all of us, and Jesus is pleading with us, that's going to come. Go ahead and start living for eternity now. Lay up treasures in heaven now, not on the earth. Verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where your treasure is, there your heart, literally the desires of your heart will also be. There's two, two sides of this. First side is saying, in a sense, where your treasure is, similar to me at the carnival, reveals something about your heart. What your treasure is in this life, people looking and seeing, where are you spending money, time, resources, that reveals something about your heart. So let's look at two examples of uh, people that encounter Jesus in the scriptures. Two examples, people coming, encounter Jesus, and we get to actually peer into their heart as a result of them having a conversation with Jesus. The first is uh, the rich young ruler, rich young ruler of Mark 10. This man comes and to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, you've heard the law, lists a couple of the laws. The rich young ruler says, I followed these since birth. And Jesus says, okay, that's great. Uh, verse 21, and looking at him, Jesus said, he loved him and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. There's the treasure. You've got a bunch on this earth. Sell all that, lay up treasures in heaven and follow me. What's the reaction? What's the heart that's revealed? Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he, the rich young ruler, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. So there's one guy. He encounters Jesus. Jesus says, okay, let's see what, what is the treasure of your life and what's the heart that's revealed. I want the treasures here. I'd like to follow you, but not at this cost. And so I'm going to go away sorrowfully. There's another man that encounters Jesus, and his name is Zacchaeus, which we know from Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a very offensive. I cannot believe you guys just said that. You were not with the times. Uh, hopefully we don't sing that in our children's Sunday school. Okay. You guys got to get with it. Okay. Uh, you haven't been on Twitter in a while. You can't say that kind of stuff anymore. So uh, Zacchaeus, he was short. 
Uh, and so he has to climb up into a tree to see Jesus, uh, and he's also a tax collector, which means every Jewish person would have hated him. He's a Jew who works for Rome, and he not only collects taxes, but he keeps a little bit extra for himself. That's why tax collectors are so hated, uh, so cheating people out of their money. And he sees Jesus. He climbs up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. He sees Jesus. He meets Jesus. He says, come down. I want to have dinner at your house. Luke 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, I have uh, the, ha- the half of my goods uh, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Jesus isn't saying, Okay, because you're going to give your money away, you'll be saved. What he's saying is, the way you're spending your money, I can now see who your Lord is, and it's me. Unlike the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, and he finds his true Lord. And therefore, all the treasures on this earth are now neglected that he might lay up heavenly treasures. And because of how he's spending his treasure, his heart has been revealed. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. It's come into the heart of Zacchaeus, and you can see it by his treasure. You see that. He encounters Jesus. He neglects earthly treasures, and now he is going to lay up heavenly treasures because he's fundamentally changed in meeting Jesus. When you encounter Jesus, are you the rich young ruler, or are you Zacchaeus? Are the high claims he would have on your life too much? You would like to follow him. Who wouldn't like eternal life? Who wouldn't like to avoid hell? Sure, yeah, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Everyone asks that question, but is the answer, the high call, the pick up your cross and follow me, the deny pleasures here for eternal pleasures there, is that too much? And will you leave sorrowfully or... Well, you see, this, this man, this God, is infinitely greater than anything here. Therefore, I will do whatever it takes, do whatever he tells me with my treasures here to gain treasures there. Who does our life look more like, Zacchaeus or the rich young ruler Jesus, again, pleading with you? Learn from Zacchaeus. Learn from Zacchaeus. So I said there's two sides to this. The first is where your treasure is, it actually reveals your heart. The second side of that coin, uh, we will see actually more clearly in the next section. I'll just tell you, it's where you set your treasure, the desires of your heart will follow. Where you set your treasure, the desires of your heart will follow. So let's look at this next section, the light of your eyes. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your body is healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. Or sorry, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I will be honest again with everyone. I didn't know what Moss did. And secondly, I've read this passage a whole bunch, and it's one of those passages, you know, you read it in your quiet time, and you're like, I don't know what that means, but I'll study it later, right? I got to keep going, right? I got to finish chapter six on Monday, right? So I'm glad I got to actually study uh, this passage. It seems pretty confusing. I don't know what Jesus is talking about. And then it seems at best kind of out of place. So let's, let's break this down. What's Jesus getting at here? The eye is the lamp of 
the body. So a lamp, uh, in the same way that you know, a lamp brings light to a room. I wake up in the morning and my kids are real sensitive to light, so I navigate the house in the dark holding the walls, and then I shut the door, and I have a button for our lamp uh, on the floor, and I step on it, and boom, light goes everywhere, okay? So put in your notes right now, Jared taught us how lamps work, okay? So that's step one. Lamps shine light on the whole room so you can see, and similarly, your eyes, seeing with your eyes allows the rest of your body to function properly. So if if you can see, you can walk into this room through the doors, instead of slamming into the wall, right? You can find your seat, you can see where it is, and you can use your legs to walk and sit down in your seat. You can use your hand to get a cup and put it under the coffee spigot and get it in the cup and not on your hands, right? If your eyes are working properly, the rest of the body is also working properly. But if your eyes are bad, if you can't see, then you might not know where the door is. Obviously, we have modern-day helps, but you see the, the point of the analogy. If your eyes, just these tiny little eyes aren't working, the whole body could be thrown out of whack. You might hit the wall. You might sit on the floor. You might get coffee on your hand instead of in the cup and things like that. And so Jesus here is using this kind of analogy, just this facts of how eyes work in relation to your body to show how your, the eyes of your soul, if you will, uh, relate to your spiritual body, your spiritual life. If your eyes are set in the wrong place, your whole spiritual life will be thrown out of whack and filled with darkness. If your eyes are set on the right place, the whole body, the whole spiritual life will be filled with light. Now, that's great. Again, how does that relate to treasures and and things like that? And something that I think sheds more light, no pun intended, uh, on this is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So uh, Matthew 20, we'll get there in a while. Jesus tells a story of there's a master who has a vineyard and he's going out to hire laborers. And so he gets some guys early in the morning and says, I'll pay you a day's wage, a denarius, a day's wage. And then they go start working. And as the day goes on, he goes and finds more laborers around lunchtime and says, hey, I'll, I'll give you a day's wage to go work. And then he finds people like with an hour left in the day and says, hey, go work. I'll give you a day's wage. And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same amount, which is what he promised all of them. And the people who started working in the morning grumble at this. I've been working eight hours, they've been working one, why do we get the same wage? And uh, Jesus says this in the parable in Matthew 20. But he, the master of the vineyard, said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius, a day's wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give uh, to the last worker uh, as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose? Uh, with my belongings to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? And I have that underlined because literally in the Greek, that means, or what it says there is, or is your eye bad because I am good? It's the same phrasing Jesus is using here in Matthew 6. So what's Jesus getting at? Quite simply, there's two kinds of eyes, two kinds of spiritual eyes. There's bad eyes that are greedy that hate God's uh, generosity, that's stingy eyes, and therefore the whole spiritual life is, is thrown out of whack because it's living for self. The eyes are set on self, and now the whole spiritual life is walking in great darkness. You see the treasures of this world, as the rich young ruler does, as, as more supreme, right, as of greater value than the treasures in heaven, and therefore that's what you live for. 
Your eyes are set here on this world, and therefore your whole life and your spiritual life are here. And therefore you're walking in great darkness, but there's another kind of eyes, good, healthy eyes that are set on heavenly treasures, that are set on God, and therefore the whole life, the whole spiritual life is walking in the light, right? It sees God as supreme. It sees God as the one that we should pour out our lives for. So now we're actually finally getting to what I said earlier. There's two sides to the where your treasure is. There your heart will also be the first side, again, where your, your, your treasure reveals your heart. And then here we're seeing how this relates to the second side. The treasure you set your eyes on, your heart's desire, your whole body, your whole spiritual life will follow. Where you set the eyes of your heart, if you will, the whole life, the whole body will follow. And so if you want to be healthy, if you want to live a a healthy spiritual life, a life filled with life, you have to set your eyes on heaven. Set your eyes on God. Set your eyes on the things above. Set your eyes on treasures there again in the next life. All of us, because we're born post-Adam and Eve, we're born post-the fall, we're all born into sin, we're all born spiritually blind, and so we're constantly needing a correction to look away from this world and back up to Jesus. If we're going to see reality, the reality that God is God and that we're not, right? That's what Adam and Eve, I actually want to decide what is good and what is evil, I don't trust you to to be the God over my life. I want to be the God over my life. Every one of us are born into the world thinking that same way with those same eyes. I'm God, not you. And if we want to see reality, because that's an illusion, if you want to see reality, we need to change our eyes. We need new eyes, if you will, to see the world for what it is that God is God, that we're not. Paul prays for the Ephesian church. I love this. Illustrates the point. Paul's going and planting churches, and the letters that we're getting is is sending back to these churches that he loves or churches that he hears about. Some he he didn't plant himself. But he's writing this to the Ephesians, a church in Ephesus. says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I'm constantly praying for you, Ephesian Christians, and here's what I pray for you. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, look at verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. What's Paul getting at? I want you to have eyes. I want you to have good eyes. The eyes Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 6, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And what happens when your eyes are enlightened? You know, so that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. What's Paul praying for? Right eyes that see the glorious inheritance that is yours, the unthinkable hope of the gospel that is yours in Christ Jesus, the heavenly treasures, the inheritance that will one day be yours because of Christ Jesus. I want your eyes healthy, 
That's what Paul prays for this church in chapter one of Ephesians. Get your eyes healthy. Don't have bad eyes and walk in darkness. Rather have good eyes. Paul again says in Colossians 3, one of my favorite passages, if then you've been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've been baptized, you don't have to be baptized to be a Christian, but what baptism symbolizes, you're going down and dying to yourself and you're being raised anew with Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. If that's true of you, if you're a Christian, if you've been raised with Christ, (laughs) seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, or where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, you could say, set your eyes on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, not earthly treasures, but the things in heaven, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's going to be ripped from your hands at death. You've already died if you're a Christian. Your life isn't here anymore. It's hidden with Christ in God. Is there anything more wonderful than that? It's not up to you anymore. It's up to him. We're getting sidetracked. Get your eyes up. Right? That's the point. If that's true of you, if you're a Christian, set your mind on the things above. Set your eyes on the things above. We often hear, you know, you can't be too heavenly minded or else you won't be any earthly good. Jesus here is saying, no, 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 no. Until you're heavenly minded, until you're heavenly obsessed, until your eyes are only there, you will do no earthly good. Pray that God gives you good, healthy eyes that are fixed there so that we can actually live here for his glory, right? Only when we have eyes fixed there, only when we have good, healthy eyes will you see your job, uh, not just for a paycheck, right, but rather the, the sector of society the Lord has put you in to minister to those around you. You'll see your relationships, not just for camaraderie, that's a gift, but not only there, not just for camaraderie, but people that you're called to serve, people you're, you're meant to bear their burdens. You'll see your neighbors, uh, not just as like a nice environment to live in, but rather the mission field that the Lord has put you in. You'll see your time not just to be filled up with entertainments for now, but to be spent for his glory. You'll see your money as his that he's actually given you to, to steward rather than yours to use however you would like. And when you know, you've hit your... Other uh, quotas, you will give a little extra for his kingdom. Uh, John Wesley, the famous Methodist preacher, says, I love this quote, it's not how much of my money will I give to God, but how much of God's money will I keep for myself. Uh, He had a bad view of predestination, but he had heaven's eyes right there. He's got uh, good, healthy eyes when he thinks of his treasures Only when you have eyes set on the kingdom, eyes set above, will you store up for yourself treasures in heaven and your whole spiritual life will walk in light, will walk in health. Set your treasures on the things above, heavenly treasures, have good eyes set on God. And then the third point, really the main point, uh, is decide who the Lord of your life is, and all the rest of that will just fall into place. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one 
and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or the Greek uh, word is mammon, which just means your possessions, your wealth, uh, your estate, if you will. So Jesus uh, shifts from his eye-body analogy to now a master-servant, master-slave analogy, and is just saying, you will have a master. You will serve something or someone. Even if you think it's you, it's not you, that's an illusion. You will serve something or someone, and who you serve, the master you serve, will determine your relationship to all other masters. It will determine uh, your feelings towards all other masters. Who you serve and love will determine who you hate. Who you devoted to will determine who you despise. And so choose, and then everything else will fall into place. And then he comes just out and plain, uh, plainly says, I'm talking about God and money. I'm like, oh, thank you. Uh, those of us who just want it straightforward. You can't serve God and money. You can't live for God and live for accumulation of earthly treasures at the same time. Very simple, very straightforward, kind of the the point of this whole passage. And it highlights a point that at the very first Matthew sermon, we said we would see over and over and over again all throughout this gospel. And the point is this, when you encounter Jesus... You've got two options. Crown him as king. Call him Lord over your whole life and follow him with everything. Pick up your cross and follow him. Or like the rich young ruler, reject him. Kill him for getting in the way of you being Lord of your own life. There is no third option. There is no being indifferent to him. There is no having him as savior. Thank you, I'll take no hell but not Lord. I will still do whatever I want to do. But I prayed a prayer when I was four, check eternity, now back to, right? Keeping up with the Joneses, that does not exist. You have to choose one, crown him, kill him. He lays far too much claim over your life for you to just be indifferent to him. He lays far too much claim over everything in your life for you to just say, I'll keep you around, you know, when it's convenient for me. I'll give you a Sunday and then the rest of the week I live however I want to live. You have those two options, hate him or love him, be devoted to him or despise him, crown him or kill him, serve God or serve money. You cannot do both. You must choose and where you choose, if you start here and look backwards, I, use, I point it up because my notes go like that. If you look backwards, right, at what we've walked through, who you crown as Lord will determine where your eyes go and will determine who you live for, the treasures that you live for. You crown mammon, Lord, your eyes will be bad. It will be in this world. You will accumulate heavenly treasures. You might, like the rich fool, have so much that you build bigger barns to store them in and they will be ripped from your hands. Or you could crown Jesus as Lord and you can have good eyes and you can have treasures that at death are put into your hands, never to be taken away, that last forever. And if you are in this room and maybe you haven't crowned him, you're not a Christian, you don't want to be, and you got roped into coming here or something like that, and you've tried to kill him in a sense, uh, he's a merciful savior. You don't have to have that day where all things are ripped 
from your hands as death unexpectedly comes to you and you see that your life uh, was a foolish one, lived for things that will go away and be forgotten, you can come to him and crown him and set your eyes on him and have eternal treasures that will last. If, you, if you're a Christian, if you're a non-Christian, you want your life to count for eternity. If you want uh, the next life to be infinitely greater than this one, like Paul says, the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that's to come to me when I see him, then crown him. Crown him and let your eyes be set on him and lay up treasures in heaven where your king, Jesus, is. And as we saw in Colossians 3, where your life already is, if you're a Christian, crown him, set your eyes on him and lay up treasures in heaven. I want to end with a life that actually did crown Jesus, had his eyes set on Jesus and laid up treasures in heaven, uh, the life of Adoniram Judson who was, I'm reading his biography, so whatever I'm reading finds its way into my sermon. Uh, He was a missionary, he was born in uh, 1788, Uh, so missionary a couple hundred years ago. His dad was a pastor, and so he was very much, he grew up in a Christian Christian home in in, uh, America, in newly formed America, and so he very much knew this. You know, I live for, become a Christian, I live for heaven, and I don't live for this earth, but then as he got older, uh, into his teenage years, he decided, no, actually, yeah, I, I think this, uh, this God stuff's a bit dumb, uh, and I'm going to live for this earth. He was very ambitious. He met a guy named Jacob Eames at Brown University who kind of convinced him to be a deist, uh, to reject the Christian God and just kind of live for now, and he was brilliant. Adonai Judson was brilliant. He uh, entered Brown at 16. Uh, he was a great writer, student. He became the valedictorian of his class. He wrote two textbooks before he was 20 uh, in grammar and in math, arithmetic. Uh, and he aspired to, to law, to become a senator, and one day to become president. And everyone around him, his professors included, thought, yeah, he could, he could do this. Uh, he's a brilliant young man. And so he was living for the now. And uh, he, at 21, was on his way home and stayed at an inn. And the guy next to him and the room next to him was dying. And so he's trying to sleep. And he hears this guy just coughing and choking. And, you know, back then you died, you know, you get a cold and you die. And uh, they didn't have Advil to save our lives like we do now. Uh, and so the guy next to him was dying. And Adoniram just can't go to sleep. He's, again, this brilliant thinker. He thinks Christianity is ridiculous. His father's religion is ridiculous. But then something about laying there, just thinking about, this guy's going to die. Uh, and it wasn't death itself that, that uh, confused him or made him think it was, is this guy ready for death? And he thought this. I have this written down or for you guys to follow along. Uh, This is Adoniram thinking. Uh, What kept him up was the thought that the man in the next room might not be prepared for death. Was he himself? A confused coil of speculation unwound itself as he lay half dreaming, half waking, while the autumn chill stole down from the mountains and crept through every crack and cranny of the house. He wondered how he himself would face death. His father, the pastor, would welcome it as a door opening outwards to immortal glory, but to Adoniram, the son, the free thinker, the deist, the infidel, the lying huddled under the covers, death was an exit, not an entrance. It was the door to an empty pit, to the darkness darker than night, at best to extinction, at worst to what? 
On this matter, his philosophy was silent. It had no answer, but who knows? He had always been neat and well-groomed, and his mother had taught him to be fastidious. He cared for his own person, lived for this life, lived for earthly treasures, but he must die, and the grave was cold, dark. The grave was a cold, dark place. His flesh crawled, was the wet, earthy mold and the moistless body, the slow dissolution of muscles and tendons, the slower crumbling of bone, the immense weight of the soul. Was this all through the endless centuries? And there was terror in these fantastical unwinding ideas. So you see the dilemma. He's living for this life now. He has great ambition even to become president. And he comes face to face with eternity. He comes face to face with death. And he's starting to think, what if I'm wrong At best, is it just I am extinct? At worst, is it something far worse? And then he eventually goes to sleep. The next morning, he goes to the front desk clerk and asks, you know, how is the man in the room next to me? And uh, the front desk clerk just said, he's he's dead, he died. Uh, And Adoniram said, well, do you know who he was? And he said, yes, he's a fellow from uh, Brown University named Jacob Eames, the friend that had actually led Adoniram to be a deist, and this, of course, shocks him, and not long after that, the spirit moves, and he's converted, decides to seek treasures in heaven, and he says this, from this time on, he was literally a new man. He banished forever the dreams of literacy and political ambition in which he had formerly indulged. He banished his earthly treasures and simply asked himself, how shall I order my future being best to please God. So there's the decision. Banish the earthly treasures. How might I live for the heavenly treasures? He decides to be a missionary to Burma, modern-day Myanmar, which was an incredibly hostile place. No missionaries had survived that had tried to go there, but it was utterly unreached. And so he was convinced, and he goes, uh, and he goes through incredible suffering as a missionary. He didn't just not have earthly treasures. He had suffering for his heavenly treasures, immense suffering. Uh, throughout his life there, he, uh, two of his three wives, he wasn't a polygamist, he married one, uh, one after the other, two of his three died while he was there. Of his 13 children uh, that were born to him from these three wives, seven would not survive uh, Burma, just the hostilities of Burma. He was imprisoned and tortured and constantly getting sick and unknown diseases. He had no treasure on this earth, and he had quite the opposite. So why are we talking about him at the end of this sermon? What of his treasure in heaven? What was he storing up? What did he pour out his life to store up? Uh, first, he led hundreds, hundreds of uh, Burmese to crown Jesus as their king. It took him 12 years to see 18 converts, and then a marvelous uh, outpouring came. He wrote a letter back home, this. This is towards the end of his life. The spirit of inquiry is spreading everywhere through the whole length and breadth of the land. We have distributed nearly 10,000 tracts, giving to none but those who asked. So, uh, so, uh, or some come, two or three months' journey from the borders of Siam and China, sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We're afraid of it. Do give us a writing that tells us to escape of it. Others from the frontiers of Cathay, 100 miles north of Ava, sir, we have seen a writing that tells us about an eternal God. 
Are you the man that gives away such writings? Uh, If so, pray, give us one. For we want to know the truth before we die. Others come from the interior of the country. I love this. Uh, Where the name of Christ is little known. No one's crowned him uh, from this region. And they come to Adoniram and say, Are you the Jesus Christ man? Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. He evangelized, he planted churches, he established schools, he trained different preachers, he trained the Bible or translated the Bible into Burmese, he encouraged missions, he traveled back to America, hundreds went to the field, the mission field, as a result of his singular efforts. Uh, When he got to Burma, there were zero Christians that anyone knew of, zero. Uh, and today, the best estimates in, in Myanmar is there are 3 million. Uh, and there's 4,000 uh, Baptist congregations, which was his, uh, his denomination. And I think, uh, quite simply, uh, Adoniram knew, I can pour out my life for treasures in heaven because heaven has already given its greatest treasure to me. Uh, Jesus Christ, though he is God, did not... Uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but already had come down and humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Though he was rich, though he had every every heavenly treasure that there was, laid them all down, and for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Adoniram knew that, and so he knew I can pour out my life for him because he knew he was infinitely rich, In Jesus, he laid his life down for the life that is to come. He crowned him. His eyes went up and were set on him. His life was poured out for him. And he very much stored up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And no thieves break in and steal. And at his death, it was placed into his hand. May we follow him as he followed Christ. Only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when we are dying, how glad we will be if the lamp of our life has been burned out for thee. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that would be true of us. I pray that you would do that. Uh, It's so easy to read stories and get inspired and it fades by uh, the end of the parking lot. Uh, But that's motivation. That's not the fruit of your spirits. And so we pray that you would change our hearts, whether we become missionaries in Myanmar or we stay in McKinney our entire life. Let our lives be poured out for you and you alone. Let us crown your son as our king and our Lord and live and move and have our being in him that we would see We're dead here. Our life is hidden with Christ in God, and so our eyes are fixed on where our life is, and that we might store up treasures in heaven, however mundane they may seem. Let us store up treasures in heaven where our life is, where our Savior is, where our Father is. I pray that you would do that by your Holy Spirit, and I pray that in your Son's glorious name, Jesus' name, amen.